This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Bring Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Bring Magazine, Jamie Bogner. This is episode 212 of the podcast, and I am in Longmont, Colorado, not too far from home today, right across the street from one of my favorite bakeries in all of Colorado, Babette's. I'm at Primitive Beer, and joining me on the podcast are Lisa and Brandon Bull. Welcome to the podcast, Lisa and Brandon. Thanks for having us. Hey, it's great to be here. And I should say, Pearl is in the background. <laughs> she is. Yeah. You might hear quite a bit of her uh, cooing and, uh, and squawking. Yeah, she's an exotic bird of sorts. We uh, we operate a family-friendly podcast here, <laughs> and uh, craft beer, I believe, should be family-friendly and embrace that kind of uh, lifestyle approach to what we do. And so, yeah, Pearl's in the background. Maybe we'll hear from her. Maybe we won't. Maybe. No, yeah. you'll, you'll <laughs> definitely hear from her. <laughs> she's very vocal. Sure, sure. If you're not familiar with primitive beer they uh, specialize in spontaneously fermented uh, wild ales and uh, those with fruit those without fruit they won a 2019 silver medal the great american beer festival in the experimental beer category and we i can't wait to talk about how you brew spontaneously fermented beer here in the high desert of colorado um, and build it in a characterful and uh, interesting creative way but first what if you could chill your beer with a more efficient chiller the answer gnd chillers new micro channel condensers gnd's micro channel condensers are highly efficient in hotter regions use a fraction of the refrigerant over traditional chillers which provides less opportunity for leaks and lower global warming potential. GD Chiller's engineers are committed to green technology design, developing a more efficient chiller for the brewing industry. Contact GD Chillers today at gdchillers.com. Also, support for this episode comes from BSG Craft Brewing, announcing a cool new product offering T45 lupulin enriched hop pellets. They're more efficient than T90s. T45 hot pellets contain a higher concentration of aromatic oils and bittering resins with a reduced level of polyphenols and plant material. This means a big, delicious hop flavor with fewer pounds per barrel, creating a more cost-efficient and sustainable beer production thanks to reduced wort losses. Supplies are limited. Secure your order today at go.bsgcraft.com slash t-45. Before we start talking, I also want to remind everybody, I guess I'm not reminding because I'm telling you for the first time, next week, Thursday, 9 a.m. on 11-11, November 11th, we are releasing our annual Best in Beer podcast, also pushing the Best in Beer issue of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine live, all happening at 9 a.m. Mountain Time on Thursday, 11-11. Tune in for that. Joe Stang and I will be offering our annual podcast running through all of our Best in Beer, Reader's Choice, Editor's Picks, uh, and everything else. The following week on Friday, 11-19, we'll run the Critics Podcasts, where each of our critics, Kate Bernat, Stan Hieronymus, Samer Kadari, uh, yours truly, Alex Kidd of Don't Drink Beer, and, uh, and Joe Stang will all uh, share our personal favorites of the year. Um, we've got exciting things on the horizon for the rest of this year in the podcast with some uh, international stuff. And 2022 is shaping up to be an awesome year. So thank you for tuning in. And I hope you continue to. Lisa and Brandon, let's talk about primitive beer. Yes. 
Um, give me the the kind of brief history of primitive and some of uh, and your all's collective background in craft beer. What led you all to the point where you are now operating this small family owned, spontaneously focused brewery here in Longmont, Colorado? Sure. So we started in craft beer, um, probably first with home brewing, lots and lots of home brewing, getting really creative with, you know making beers and then they weren't great. And then we learned what made them not great. And then we worked toward improving ourselves and forward forward until we started um, in the industry at Odd 13 in Lafayette. Um, Brandon was the head brewer. I ran the tap room. And uh, that was a really eye-opening experience that you could do this thing that you're very passionate about and it could be your job, which is, you know, people know that. But I think it was it was groundbreaking for us. And then with more time, we started to find Lambic and sour, sour beers first and then Lambics and Goose and got so excited about that, April, <laughs> and uh, decided that's what we wanted to focus on specifically and have a brewery dedicated exactly to that and not make anything else. And that's yeah. how Primitive was founded. <laughs> Yeah, I should mention that um, entering the professional brewing uh, arena was never uh, – we'd never set out to actually become brewers. Lisa and I met in graduate school for geology. So our uh, – you know, we've definitely been going with the flow in a lot of ways. And make no mistake about it, primitive beer was Lisa's idea at first. Um, <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. When we – uh, like she said, when we'd accidentally kind of fallen into the uh, into the beer industry in Colorado, vis-a-vis, uh, -vis, you know, through Odd 13, uh, probably two years into it, right on my birthday, she made the announcement that, you know, if we're really going to keep doing this, we should be uh, doing it to, you know, our fullest, um, you know, kind of the fullest extreme and uh, really put everything into it. So at that point, the idea of Primitive was still nebulous. Uh, we knew it, want, it had to focus around barrels and spontaneous beer to some capacity, but in the beginning, uh, when we were first kind of putting this business plan together, it wasn't originally an only spontaneous beer blendery in the style of uh, Belgian Lambic. There was a little more um, uh, breadth in terms of what we were going to play around with. But the more we started talking and the more we really started being honest with ourselves about what we were most fascinated by and what beers that we wanted to drink – it soon, uh, as long as we were doing something that made no sense, why not just make it as nonsensical as possible? So primitive beer really became just, uh, in our minds, it's the idea that if you took a lambic blendery outside of the Piatland, outside of the Sun River Valley, and accidentally dropped it somewhere else, what would that look like? What would that be like? Um, you know, in case I make the mistake of accidentally, and it very rarely happens, but if I accidentally call our beer lambic, um, make no mistake about it, we know that we're not in the right uh, geographic appellation for it we have the utmost respect for those who are producing it in belgium um and you know we make method traditional beer but um damn do we wish sometimes that we did live in that region of belgium to be able to do it and, and call it lambic sure sure so you mentioned that uh you know if you're going to do this crazy thing which is pretty crazy to uh launch your own brewing business there's you're in a state like colorado that has a lot of breweries. There's a lot of competition um, for for people making and selling beer here. Um, you know, there's some benefit to having a narrow but uh, intense focus, and in that you're not trying to capture all of the market. You are just trying to capture that kind of audience that is really interested in this. But uh, at the same time, you also look to sell your beer to a 
broader national audience that's interested in this. Um, but still from a business perspective, why on earth would you focus, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're making this, in a, this kind of spontaneous beer in a place that is not necessarily known for having a great microbial culture. It's very, very dry here. Um, winters are incredibly cold, too cold for, for a lot, you know, in a lot of ways for what would be traditional Lambic brewing, you know, what, uh, the issue is also how dry it is. Yeah. It's so dry here. We lose so much to evaporation. Sure. Absolutely. And that, that all factors into it. Um, I, the, the simple answer would be, uh, we're socialists and the, uh, you know, it's a terrible business model. I would not suggest anyone follows us. Um, if I were to stretch that out a little bit and put on a capitalist hat, I'd say that Colorado has, despite definitely having to work through some hurdles from a climatic and a brewing process standpoint to make this beverage we love so much, it does, Colorado has an incredibly educated beer consumer uh, you know, kind of fan base. So as a result, while we might have to work I, I won't. I won't say harder because brewing brewing spontaneous beer is very difficult anywhere. But while we might have to get a little more creative in some ways to uh, turn those really esoteric dials in such a way that creates a favorable product within you know, three to four years, knowing that we would at least have some people who had some idea of what was inspiring us, uh, you know, what is a favorable versus uh, kind of degradational outcome of spontaneous fermentation, some degree of education there, or at least a population that is ready to engage and has a desire to learn, even if they're not familiar with what we're creating in the beginning. So that was a big part of why absolutely. Colorado. Yeah, absolutely. As you all launched this, it has been, there have been, um, you, you, the approach to life and business structure have varied from time to time. It is not necessarily and has not been a full-time gig. It has been a project and that's one of the benefits of brewing this kind of beer. You can make it in a season and, you know, let it ride through. Um, but you have also maintained employment other places in order to kind of, you know, create some of that economic security yes. through this. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how much, even if you're only brewing in the winter, how much the rest of the year gets filled in with packaging, uh, in the non-brewing season. And then the fruit season feels like it comes sooner and sooner sure. every year. I mean, mid-June is peaches or mid-July is peaches. And by the time peaches are done, it's cherries and then other stone fruit. And then you want to do any kind of berry. And so it really sneaks up on you. And that's packaging fruit. And then it's all of a sudden brew season again. So in that way, it is seasonal, but it's, it's rapid. Um, but yes, we have other jobs. Um, Brandon is transitioning into full-time here at Primitive, which is really exciting. It's something we've been building toward for four years now. Sure. Um, it's always been a side project, but it really needs our focus now with all this beer that's aged and ready to, ready to package and enjoy. Absolutely. From a, a business model standpoint, that, that, was, that was part of it, was understanding that for many years – taking any money from this project or taking other resources away from it would not really allow it to function. Being able to, and I'm sure we'll talk more about the specifics later, but being able to start this without having a brew house here, without having uh, to invest in some of the more uh, expensive equipment for the style of beer that we're brewing at the scale that we're looking to, to do it at. So being able to say, all right, we're not going to take money from it. We're not going to buy a brew house. We are not going to do some of these uh, more other more conventional uh, components of starting a, a brewery allowed us to 
basically now build up more than four years of spontaneous stock in a way that we find uh, super exciting. And, uh, I'm, you know, I think we're both pleased with the results so far. And yeah, I mean, if we were to get a new um, fruit shipment tomorrow, we could put it on three-year-age beer and have it be ready, you know, in a matter of weeks. Right. Then it would need to condition. But it would, it's we're ready to you know, go on any, any number of opportunities. Ready to get weird with it at yeah, any, at any moment. The drop of a hat. <laughs> but yeah, having a, having a other... that runway, you know, normal brewery can, you know, get into operation and, you know, put beer in tanks and within three or four weeks, yeah. they've got something that they can sell. This is our three-year version. <laughs> We're now ready to go. <laughs> yeah, our, our much more esoteric, uh, yeah, long-winded kind of brewery or beer project at that point. And, and yeah, yeah, and you had some you know fun strategies for having beer to sell earlier on. Basically, you know, selling uh, you know lambic style lambic in a bag, um, you know, uncarbonated you know lambic that or lambic style beer. I'm gonna catch myself every no, time I hey, say that. You too. can say it. We can't say it. <laughs> <laughs> We always try to do that, you know, Belgian style, Lambic style, right? You know, because obviously you're not in Belgium, right, you're not right. in the in the Seine Valley, you're not making that that thing with that appellation, um, and that is fair, and it's a reasonable uh, ask from those makers to to be oh. considerate of that kind of thing. Um, no judgment on that whatsoever. Yeah, uh, I will just try to maintain that no, and pretty, yeah, yeah. speak about it, you know, properly through the. Well, but anyway, let's pivot and talk about some of that strategy because, like you said, you don't op- you don't have a brew house here. You're brewing more to other places you're definitely brewing wort structured with recipes that will build the kind of components in that wort as you cool ship them that can create beer that will you know ferment and uh, uh, acidify and otherwise develop that funk and character over time. Um, you're, you're, you, uh, we can talk about how you build those recipes. We can talk about uh, how you convince other breweries to brew this uh, you know, difficult <laughs> yeah. dexterous wort. Uh, before we do that, a brewery might have 99 problems, but your fruit supplier shouldn't be one. Old Orchard is already known for their quality concentrates, but they also pride themselves on consistent product and reliable supply. When brewers need assistance, Old Orchard is just an email, phone call, or even a text away. Based in Greater Grand Rapids, Michigan, better known as Beer City USA, Old Orchard is core to the brewing community. To join their fruit family, learn more at www.oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also, are you ready to brew like a pro? Pro Brew has the equipment, systems, and technology to take your brewery production production to the next level. Check out www.probrew.com for pro-carb inline carbonation technology, pro-fill rotary filling and seaming can fillers, the Alchemator inline alcohol separation system, 7 to 50 barrel brew houses, and more. Pro Brew offers the craft beer industry innovative solutions to help you brew like a pro. Go to www.probrew.com for more info. So you set this up. You know you're going to have to sit on beer for a few years before you're really going to have a volume to sell of the if, kind. If of, any of it comes out. If any of it comes out. Because, right, you're taking it's a, a, giant, a yeah. giant leap of faith. Yeah. Um, and so you do that. You rent a space. Um, not buying, a, not spending a couple hundred thousand dollars on a brew house. Certainly a much better capital uh, you know, position to be in. Um, you know, it still creates a, a challenge of having to brew wort. You have a cool ship here at the, at the brewery in Longmont. So you're brewing wort and then you're bringing it back here, cooling, inoculating it overnight in that kind of traditional method. Um, but talk to, talk to me a little bit about designing a beer for that. Yeah. Um, and then how you've made ingredient choices, you know, for the kind of, you know, core wort in your beer. Sure. So 
on on one level, the design was uh, pretty simple and straightforward, given that the uh, Belgians allowed us access to understand what sure. traditional Lambic looks like in terms of, let's call it approximately 60% Pilsen equivalent malted barley, 40% raw wheat, use of debittered hops, a turbid mashing schedule, as well as then a marathon boil sets the stage. Um, while that seems pretty uh, constrained or rigid, there's still a fair amount of uh, of room of, of these dials that might not make an influence on what that wort tastes like immediately or even in the next three days to three months. But extrapolated or ampl- amplified by time, all of those very small dials have a, a profound effect. So a big part of what um, you know, some adjustments that we've made over time really have to do with, as you mentioned, evaporation and the fact that we're living in this high, uh, you know, high arid desert uh, environment, not to mention that we're, um, you know, also have an elevation where evaporation is happening more quickly, sure, at a, sure. you know, call it a mile higher or whatever. And those, those um, you boil at a lo- we boil at a lower temperature up it, here, right? And- exactly. Yeah, I think uh, our on the uh, the biggest, uh, you know, the highest temperature we can get our boil at is if we're going real vigorous, we can get it up to a whopping two hundred six degrees Fahrenheit, <laughs> as opposed to that, you know, classic two hundred twelve. So there's already there's already that effect. Um, what I will say, something that's not not talked about too often, or maybe people are starting to talk about it a bit more with spontaneous beer is the loss in the cool ship and the evaporation just of taking a vessel that is designed specifically for good heat transfer. But that also means, uh, you know, if it's a shallower, wider vessel, you're going to have more evaporation, especially of a really warm fluid and, uh, you know, with dry, cold air. So taking a look at those losses in the cool ship in the 12 to 18 hours that we're allowing it to chill naturally at that, that time of year and understanding the effect of just uh, whether you have a low pressure system, what the atmospheric conditions are looking like at that point, and then what that means, um, I would say primarily both from a an original gravity standpoint the next morning, as well as what that looks like from a hop bitterness standpoint. Um, people talk about, you know, all right, you want your maybe approximately one to 1.5 pounds of whole cone debittered hops in your uh, in your boil per barrel. But people aren't really specifying, okay, is that your pre-boil uh, concentration, your post-boil concentration, your post-cool ship concentration? Right, right. And, you know, that can that can potentially explain why there's a, you know, 50% change between uh, a pound barrel and a pound and a half in, in those uh, estimates. But at the same time... How has that impacted what you do? Does it, has it changed the uh, cool ship geometry that you use? Has it changed, you know, the way that, you know, you've adjusted hopping rates for that so that you end up with a beer right? Or, or totally. yeah. Are, I, you, are you literally watching high the barometer and uh, understanding that even different barometric pressures are going to lead to different evaporation rates for you here in a sensitive environment? I will say that as a former paleoclimatologist, uh, you know, a geology nerd, looking at those atmospheric conditions and and understanding the changes in the weather is certainly something that we geek out to and, and, and factor in. But I would also say that we're not looking at it from a super quantitative standpoint. I think we use a lot of that, uh, a lot of that data, a lot of that information, a little more qualitatively, just in similarly to our our blending philosophy in that way. So when we know that it's going to be uh, colder at night, or we're going to have a lower pressure system, or you know, et cetera, 
we will adjust our batch volumes uh, accordingly uh, with with that understanding and with an understanding of relatively what percentage of that wort is going to evaporate at different uh, volumes which correspond to different cooling rates we have an understanding of what we want that gravity to look like coming out of the out of the kettle post boil as well as what we want our hopping rate to look like so for example if we have a a colder night let's say uh, with real low pressure our cool ship holds about 45 volumetric barrels at flood depth. We are generally brewing on 30 barrel systems at any given time. So we might, if it's a colder night with the opportunity to cool quicker, we will fill that cool ship more, understanding that we will have uh, many you know, barrels of, uh, of loss at that point. And we might be able to adjust down our gravity as well as adjust down our hopping rate because then post-evaporative concentration is going to have higher gravity right. and all of a sudden for that – The H2O uh, evaporates off, but the hops do not. Exactly, so, right. right. So understanding that and what that looks like it can be can be pretty important and that's something that we've dialed in over now. I want to I, I say it's about what our first – Cool ship season was 2017 to or 2016, 17. So we had the 16, 17, 17, 18, 18, 19, 19, 20, 20, 21. We're going to go on to our, yeah, it's a lambic math is always weird because we're going in, you know, we've, we've only would have had our third anniversary and we're going into our sixth cool ship season or something like that. So, um, you know, that's, that's definitely something that we've adjusted accordingly. And it's a fun, interesting moving target given that we have to both, understand how our beers continue to evolve and and knowing that all right if we make a, a, a small adjustment in year one or year two or year three it might take us quite a bit of time before we have a, a better understanding of what that looks like and still wanting to fill barrels that are a pertinent part of a blend at only one or two years versus beers that we design you know big air quotes on design at that point but that we would hope have the longevity to make it to three and four years or you know uh, if if things get real weird even uh, can age gracefully even even past that point so despite having a single type of beer that fills those barrels and uh you know for all intents and purposes a single recipe those micro adjustments that do get amplified by time um gives us a lot of opportunity for blending stock and for purposefully creating beers that will evolve in different ways and you know the the hopping rates that we that we take certainly you know with or without that evaporative concentration just adjusting those hopping rates as well make a big difference in terms of acidification versus uh, tasteful kind of malt based oxidation or funkiness and and what that can mean from the, the from the context of a blend so it is important for us to have uh, some variety and, and variability and in, in aging potential are, is there anything to the choice in, say, Pilsner malt, or I'm assuming you're also using a significant portion of wheat, as uh, you know, as tradition would have it, uh, in terms of ingredient selections around those? So for for us, selection, uh, and I, I, we can go into why those ingredients specifically specifically work for this sure. and, and selective pressures. But I will say that we use only Colorado ingredients for the production of our right. uh, of everything here. <laughs> yeah. So our grains were grown 30 miles east of here. And then they're malted in four columns, you know, 50, 50 miles north of here. And so they're super local. They're really, really local, which is very cool considering how immediately local our yeast is. And then the hops and fruit are all from the mountains as well. 
Yeah. So, I mean, if we're a terroir-driven brewery or a brewery that it gets excited from being able to showcase the the microflora, it it was a logical extension to say let's have <laughs> let's have that terroir showcase really everything uh, from a Colorado standpoint and. Going back to that idea of of socialism, or really not caring from a business standpoint of you know making money, if if part of what we are doing is also supporting that local local agricultural community, local keeping money in our local community, it's not to say that Colorado grains or fruits or hops are any better or worse than Belgian sure, sourced sure. or but you they're know. really high quality and they're really close by, and we get to support farmers. Exactly, we get to have those conversations, and especially on the malting side, and going back to having a pilsner equivalent kind of barley base we're using troubadour malting and we're using either their rhapsody or their pevich uh, style pilsner and the rhapsody specifically is a really undermodified um you know pale uh, pale malted barley and part of that is also just if the purpose of our turbid mashing is to create as unfermentable a wort as possible to some degree that use of undermodified malt as well as you know a high proportion of completely raw wheat really helps us achieve um, a starchy, starchy, proteinaceous wort by the end of uh, by the end of the boil, which is which you know has that longevity for if we're not controlling the microbes that inoculate our beer, we have to be able to control on some degree what available uh, sugars and and how digestible that word is. Because we know, especially from doing some research with CSU's fermentation program, much like you would see in traditional Lambic, the first microbes that are able to successfully inoculate and start devouring those sugars happen to be Enterobacter, um, some Pichia, Cloacara, and some lactic acid bacteria. So yeasts and bacteria that aren't necessarily outputting flavors that we find desirable, especially in the Sure. Um, early uh, fermentation of the beer, but that create um, some form of preservation and uh, an environment that allows the more fastidious but more desirable microbes to have the opportunity to slowly grow and um, and then start digesting and converting previous uh, compounds in a way that uh, works without that beer completely spoiling first or molding or anything else like that. So it, it's usually about 30 days before wild Saccharomyces seems to to kick off and start creating the bulk of alcoholic fermentation. And it can be up to, at this point, we're seeing it around six to eight months, but on our, you know, in our first year or two of batches, wasn't probably until 12 to 14 months until we saw Britannomyces and Pediococcus start to to kick in. And, you know, from a quality qualitative standpoint, you can still start to taste how a lot of our young beers have more in in common in some way with like almost a Hefeweizen. They a lot really of, just taste like wheat beers. Yeah. They really just taste like orangey wheat beers. A lot of They're Isoamel. Really yeah. Yeah. Some Vorvina Glycol, just a lot of those, uh, you know, Saccharomyces derived compounds at first. And all of a sudden, there's this really relatively quick, we, we tend to find like hydrolysis of the Isoamel acetate. And it just kind of the banana disappears, and all of a sudden <laughs> the cloviness starts to go more into like a little bit of leather and a little bit of like horsiness, and and the acidity starts to creep up a little bit. And um, yeah, it's a fun transition. Not that there's anything. If we wanted to be like a wild Weizen uh, <laughs> brewery or something like cool. that, <laughs> yeah, maybe some of our young beers could, uh, our younger beers could, uh, you know, hit 
hit in that ballpark, but it's fun to get to taste a barrel and have that transition from Saccharomyces forward to all of a sudden more complexity derived from just the conversion of those compounds. All of these beers are closer to each other than we might you oh, know, yeah. want to, you know, we, like we keep them in buckets because, uh-huh. you know, yeah. you know, the Westerners are very, we're Americans. <laughs> we're very taxono- taxonomic, yeah. like we love to categorize and classify, um, but often the, the edges bleed over into each other. And, and obviously when you're you know, in a country that brewed both spontaneous beers and whip beers, like, I mean, you know, right next to anyway, all of these things, you're right. There are common flavors between them because there are common organisms that are doing a lot of these things. Yeah, absolutely. And and even going back into the history of those beer styles, you know, no one was controlling the original, original inoculants. They were just saying, all right, Ooh, this batch turned out really good. Let's reuse that sure, yeast, and, sure. you know, selectively pressuring um, through multiple generations in ways that we don't, we only selectively pressure the, kind of uh, physical parameters and conditions and the chemistry of our wort in, you know, a single batch every single time. Right. What about the wheat component of the beer? Yeah. I mean, that's about 40% and that is entero, uh, entero raw wheat. Mm-hmm. So that's, a, a, it's, I think even for our maltsters, a really easy product to work with because sure. they don't have to do anything to it. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe clean it and get it, get it packaged for us. But that wheat is, um, you know, a big reason why the first uh, infusion for our turbid mash is, you know, trying to achieve around 113 Fahrenheit to 116, like a nice uh, beta glucan ferulic acid rest, just to make sure that we're not as gummy as we could be. And uh, at this point, I, I want to say we've done over, um, I want to say we're about over 60, 60 different turbid mash batches at this point. So. I haven't, knock on wood, I haven't had a stuck mash in probably about 35 batches or so, nice. but I can tell you that early on, there was a lot, especially on- You're um, making Play-Doh. Yeah, yeah, You're making like, a really yeah. gummy, oh, especially <laughs> in the beginning of a turbo mash, it's so thick, it looks more like just a kind of- steaming pile of damp grain as opposed to it doesn't really even approximate a mash in that point. But yeah, it's, it's, I think you kind of touched on earlier, um, the fact that, you know, people have let us use their equipment right. to, to make, uh, to go through a mash protocol. Here, let me just do a turbid mash <laughs> brew on your, on your brew system, right? Yeah. yeah. There's been a, there's been quite a bit of, uh, we'll say ingenuity and, and fun being able to take two vessel systems meant for single infusion mashing and being able to make modifications on them, whether that is someone allowing us to actually put in an additional like ferrule or port uh, lower down in a mash ton or using um, – we use a double diaphragm pump to also essentially make a makeshift um, mash basket. So if you think about some of the traditional Lambic breweries, they're not – you know, at, at some of those turbid pulls between uh, mash steps when they're trying to uh, remove and denature the different steps before they are able to fully convert, they won't just lauder through the bottom through like a, uh, you know, a false bottom. They'll also uh, basically decant off the top and be able to move a lot of that turbid wort very quickly to boiling temperature or at least above their, uh, you know, current enzymatic rest. So we've essentially found like one of those GW Kent like strainer baskets, uh, a double diaphragm pump and a hose that goes onto like a sieve, uh, 
uh, sock screen gasket. It's probably easier just to like send a picture or something. But um, what we can podcasts are famous. Yeah, yeah. Visual <laughs> mediums. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. If the listeners can understand exactly mm-hmm. what I'm going for here, um, we're able to not only lauder through the bottom through that false bottom during turbid pulls. We're also, uh, you know, using essentially a mass a mash basket to uh, pull off quickly from from the top as well. And we don't use that system then, you know, a- after mash out or when we finally, you know, bring it all back and Vorloff recirculate and lauder but um yeah to make sure that we are actually uh keeping a fair amount of wort unconverted and and like i said highly protonaceous um that that that's become a pretty good method for us a you know so you must have good friends that you work with if they'll let you uh fuck with their systems right yeah yeah, you know (laughs) Weld on new ports to their their brew kettles. Yeah, so part of the I, I, what type of contracts do you have to have to <laughs> you know facilitate yeah. that? So what yeah, what has helped is basically any it, I've produced word of any brewery that I've kind of worked at, and that's been part of the okay. part of the agreement is saying like, hey, you know, I'm excited to work with you and 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 help produce whatever kind of beers you're interested in. Uh, you know, want to be of service in any way, whether that's from a theoretical or you know production standpoint, that's great. But could I also use uh, use your system during the downtime for the production of our wort? And, you know, a corollary to that is if I'm modifying this equipment or if I'm producing all the wort here for me, I can teach these skills to other brewer, uh, brewers in the brewery. We can help to get a little more um, – you know, uh, get more out of your equipment and get more out of some of the other brewers. Uh, you know, if, if it's continuing mo- education, ex- sure. exactly. So it's, it's, it's people helping people. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. I think everyone benefits from, from those kind of relationships. Learn about decoction mashing too, right? Oh, totally. Similar process. Yeah. If, if skills that have come in handy for them, you know, so off. Well, I, I shouldn't say that. I mean, yeah. more you know, more. decoction more is, popular, uh, right, yeah. right. Yeah, exactly. So I think there's a lot of applicability to, even if the purpose is different and if there are slight differences in the technique, for example, you know, when we're turbid mashing, we are only pulling the liquor component of the wort. We're not pulling grist as opposed to decoction mashing where there's a, you know, a heavy grist component also brought into the kettle. Um, but besides that and the fact that, you know, in decoction mashing, you actually want a digestible wort and for turbid mashing, we're ready for it to be unfermentable. They actually resemble each other quite a bit. Um, and I think what some people call turbid mashing, like turbid decoctions. Um, sure. Anyway, so, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about hops, um, you know, because certainly that aged hop component is part of it. You've got uh, uh, surrounding us now, you know, some uh, some bales and bales of hops. Uh, and I want to talk to you about that kind of contribution to the process. But before we do that, hey, nano brewers, Fermentus, the obvious choice for beverage fermentation, will soon be offering their dry ale and lager yeasts in flexible 100 gram packaging. To learn more about how Fermentus can improve the quality of your fermentation and for the latest on their exciting new product releases, visit Fermentus.com. Also, as a brewery owner, you know how important it is to keep your machines running so you don't have to deal with the hassle caused by contamination recalls and downtime clarion makes food grade lubricants to protect your equipment from the wear and tear that results in breakdowns that cut into your bottom line clarion gives you peace of mind so you can focus on what you do best pouring out great tasting beverages learn more at www.clarionlubricants 
com. So hops certainly are an important part of this. Everyone that I've talked to that does, uh, you know, the brew spontaneously, whether, you know, I talked to, at length with Matt Tarpey of the veil vale about that on an episode of the podcast, they've got beautiful bins yeah. where they're cycling through and sorting and adding and, huh. and building this long, like multi-year aged blend to their hops. Um, when I was out at uh, Jester King back in February, Jeff and I popped up to the, the barn, the and, rafters, you know, and, climbed up yeah. and dug some, old shattered disgusting <laughs> terrible ug- ugly awful hops out of there it was just beautiful um you know you know f- for you obviously you know that that's a component of what you do talk to me about how um you go about achieving uh, some that similar kind of uh, impact because these hops i mean i think it it goes without saying like the components that they bring to the flavor of these beers is absolutely pivotal in how funk develops in spontaneous beers. And without those hops and without some of those specific flavor components that come from that aged hop, that uh, you know you will not end up with the same quality of, of funk in the beer. No, that's that that's quite right. And there's a lot of exciting research uh, occurring. Even I think YCH right now, um, they've been sending out uh, you know sample packets where you can take your own aged hops and have them sent into them for analysis and really working with brewers to understand more and more what we seek out from an aged hop perspective. And the traditional mindset has been, all right, you're going to want to take aged noble hops and, and, and hops that are starting with a low alpha. But as we've talked to other people and as we've even seen from uh, inspirations like Canteon, Canteon at this point I believe uh, sources mostly American hops and uh, slightly, high, you know, we're not talking 18 alpha acids, but slightly high alphas around like the 11 to 13 range um, for that potential for aging and some of the other compounds that even as you oxidize all of the alphas out, stay around and really leave an imprint in that wort and then that evolving beer. So some of our traditional understanding and the you know, the folkloric side of it uh, is it gets to run up against modern brewing techniques and and is challenged by contemporary brewers in, in a lot of fun ways we I love the concept of a almost that Solera kind of uh, age top program that it sounds like the veil is going for our mindset is a little bit different we're willing to allow um, complete changes in different batches for uh, aged top crop years and ver- and and cultivar. Uh, the first few years, we were only taking a bunch of Colorado Willamette and aging those. And then, unfortunately, uh, we, we, were, we were essentially taking all of Colorado's Willamette, which was only 800 pounds at the time. So not, not <laughs> sure. an exceptionally large amount of, uh, of hot material, but still for a small brewery like us, um, quite a bit. And they eventually removed those Willamette fields for uh, I think hemp or something else to grow there that understandably for those farmers sure, got a better sure. return on investment. So then we started, uh, you know, sourcing more Chinook and Cascade and some other cultivars around here, as well as now I'm excited to see how uh, Multihead and some other Neo-Mexicanus hybrids start to age and develop. Given that Neo-Mexicanus is uh, indigenous to this area, sure. that could be another fun developing component of our of our terroir and, and you know, going with that whole Colorado only thing at that point. But we've allowed for transitions between those crop years and for those cultivars in different batches because I think it can allow for that blending potential as we talked about. Mm. I, I don't think we need 
or desire every barrel to necessarily uh, taste the same. It's good to have some form of predictability in that it's not just turning into vinegar or becoming sure. a velocitator, you know, but um, seeing how those uh, cultivars do allow different barrels to age more gracefully or to kind of age more rapidly, those those are um, useful items in terms of our, our blending arsenal. I will say also from just a storage standpoint, I think we're going a little more like the, uh, the kind of the Cantillon uh, storage uh, method, which is basically keeping them in the bales, whole cone. We're not actually removing them and, and trying to expedite the oxidation or putting them um, directly into like burlap sacks. I think the oxid, like the more gradual, sensitive oxidation that occurs for those hops over um, multiple years in bales at ambient temperature, not better or worse, but for a lot of what we're trying to get out of our. Um, out of our spontaneous beers, a lot of it is still has the have those hop compounds, but maybe not to the most prominent level. You can think of some of like you know even Cantillon, that hop bitterness, that hop structure is one of the first things that comes out, and I think that's where a lot of the research has basically been: how do we make beers that taste like Cantillon, <laughs> not necessarily how do we make beers that taste like Lambic and Goose, because. We as we get into that infinitesimal of what is lambic and goose, if you taste Girardin versus uh, Jefontaine and Cantillon, those are three prolifically different beers, even if they have some things in common. So, uh, for us, allowing the hops to be a part of it, but maybe not the preeminent component of it, to let some more of the microbial uh, and the, those fermentative characteristics come to the surface, we've been aiming for a little bit more of a. Um, I would say subdued uh, hop brett uh, aromatic interaction, but still with the structure and the um, maybe preclusion of high acidification um, by use of the by use of those hops. So, it, basically, going back and, and summarizing in that way, it's how can we allow those hops to age gracefully yet still turn maybe more into um, straw and hay tasting as opposed to the cheesiest uh, you know, sure, <laughs> end sure. number that we can get. And a lot of that, I think, is through. Um, just that gradual oxidation and relative constant temperature as opposed to like 120 degrees. Right. Uh, right. Every cone bake is them. exposed. Bake them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's still a lot of risk to that, though, because because you are spontaneously inoculating this wort, you know, you're and you're dealing with hops and bales. You know, there can be a different uh, there can be different alpha levels on the outside of that bale versus the inside of that bale. Absolutely. Um, you know, and that can be the difference between a fermentation starting or your bacteria. I mean, the fer yeah, fermentation yeah, yeah. will start, you know, because wild sack will still operate. <laughs> but that could be a no no acidity versus, you know, a whole bunch of acidity. How do you you know, make sure like, uh, you know, do you have those tested to kind of check alpha before you start in a brewing season or throughout a season? What does that look like? We are, we are able to get those tested and um, I've, yeah, it's basically get a, the single bale that will be, cause that's really, you know, 150 pounds in a season is um, somewhat consistent with uh, maybe maybe we're about a bale a season. Yeah, we're about a bale. Maybe now moving towards like two bales a season. So it's easy enough for us to get a sample from yeah closer to the uh, inside of that bale and uh, and work from there and and see what that looks like. And generally, 
you know, we're still working through our Willamette. We haven't really moved on to any of the other cultivars yet. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And given that those started in the the mid twos to low threes, um, they they zeroed out actually sure. relatively quickly. So you, we might still see different. You get into your Chinooks and yeah, whatnot. Yeah, you're going to have to pay yeah. a little closer attention to that. Ex- exactly. Yeah. Uh, the Chinooks, the multi-head, all of those. Yeah, anything that has more alphas, we'll be a little more vigilant on. But it is surprising. I mean, let's let's flip the flip the script back to IPA brewing for a second. We talk about you know a perfectly uh, sealed container of you know T ninety pellets or something like that, and we know that even without necessarily the degradation of the oils and the other compounds in those hops, there's a pretty well with a hop storage index rating and for a known cultivar, there's a pretty good understanding of how those alphas are degrading through time, and those are those are you know pellets that have those dense cores and everything else, so. Yes, it, it you know it, on a short time scale you're going to see a difference between maybe the middle of that bale versus the exterior, and you'll you'll certainly still see like physical differences in maybe the coloration and some other things like that. But those alphas actually degrade um, pretty readily and pretty rapidly, especially when they start low, even in the in the center of those bales in that in that way too. Well, I'm going to pay attention in 2025 to see if you have some uh, <laughs> some batches that don't acidify uh, uh, just to hold you to this. Right? Well, so actually that kind of goes back to a previous point you brought up um, in terms of it potentially being too cold at certain times during the mm-hmm. year in Colorado and um, our mindset towards that. And I will say that especially we played with the first season, the first brew season was maybe the widest goalposts for our hopping rates and to understand because we needed to make sure that A, we had some right. beers that acidified to some point. Uh, but B, we didn't want everything to knowing what we like to drink. We wanted to make sure, okay, we, we can't, we just don't want lactic acid bombs or, or God forbid, you know, things to just go completely acetic and, and turn to vinegar quickly. So we played around, uh, with some, we'll say, we'll say post cool ship, um, hop, uh, kind of, uh, hopping rates between about 0.5 to 1.5 pounds per, uh, pounds per barrel at that point. And I think we found a sweet spot. Post cool ship. Post cool ship, uh, 0.5 to 1.5 pounds per barrel. Not adding the hops post cool ship. No, no, no. Sorry. Uh, Sorry. I mean, I. Measurement being. Exactly. I'm specifying that. The equivalent of that after. That volume. After the volume. Exactly. Exactly right. Because that that was one of those parameters that we had a hard time actually figuring out. Okay. How are people measuring their hopping rates? Is it, you know, pre boil, post boil, post cool ship? You kind of give it extra water and then it goes away it concentrates yeah. so yeah I, I think the for us the most uh, meaningful metric is talking about po- post cool ship volume at that yeah, point or, or post evaporation it, you got it Ex- yeah. exa- exactly right so in that way i think that first season we found about uh, 0.75 pounds per barrel post cool ship as the sweet spot of what acidified but uh, was graceful um you know didn't uh turn uh, completely lactic too quickly, but also was able to have strong, robust fermentations that included a bacterial com- uh, component. We did not have, we have still some barrels from that first season that were up at that 1.5 pounds per barrel mark that never acidified whatsoever and almost taste more like uh, beer de garde or mm-hmm. um, kind of like aged saison in that way, which have a super sack forward structure to them have quite a bit of now, uh, you know, oaky component because there's not much counterbalancing right. some of the tannins from even if they're neutral barrels, they're still absorbing some of that. And 
um, yeah, have a structured bitterness from those hops. But since that first season, we've now been able to creep up those hop rates. And we knew that, or hoped at least, that a lot of microbial equilibrium in the space would start to shift what that equation looked like. So now we can be uh, hopping around that 1.5 pound per barrel mark, and those beers are still acidifying. And if anything, uh, that's probably what I would consider, you know, the Goldilocks range, which thinking back is twice as much as what was the Goldilocks range in year one. Hmm. Now in year six is kind of where we're starting to plateau and figure, okay, this is this is what our beers, uh, you know, would allow them to age gracefully, have still nice structure, um, and you know, kind of for our tastes, the right amount of acid balance. So to us, that suggests that this space is holding most of that microbial equilibrium as as opposed to just you know, uh, all of the microbes coming from the from the outside space. So what you're saying is that the culture that even lives out here now is growing uh, more hop tolerant. Yeah, 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 more hop tolerant and and more uh, robust and ready to digest the wort chemistry mm-hmm. and the the type of uh, you know the type of uh, beer that we are creating in this space. As you still load into you know clean non uh, inoculated barrels. Oh, right? ab- absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So you know, as anyone will tell you, the, the barrels certainly have some microbial activity sure, sure. deep in those staves, but we are going through a complete physical cleaning steaming, uh, et cetera, sure, between sure. every batch. So the, at least the onset of fermentation isn't a function of something left behind in those barrels, but how those uh, beers might evolve in those specific barrels could have something to do with, um, you know, the, the, really, uh, the really resilient stuff that is deep within those staves. But what this means for us also is that we can create these beers and have had a lot of success creating uh, cool ship inoculated spontaneous beers in seasons or at temperature ranges that you would think of as being too cold hmm. for, you know, uh, you know, that microbial activity. So it just means we can fill that cool ship up uh, to higher volumes, have the correct cooling rate and still find uh, the onset of fermentation and the longevity of those beers to be right on target, which is cool. And some of that also comes because you've been using the cool ship so often yeah. that uh, and you have a, you know, por- a, not porous, but a, a rough hewn wood ceiling above it that can kind of capture that, that yeah. you are building an environment that, that can live on. And then over time and over time and over time, you know, all of that evapor- evaporation is putting sugars and whatnot that, oh, yeah. that these, uh, this culture, these, you know, various bacteria and uh, wild yeast can live on. And so you're, you know, just, just by cool shipping itself, you're creating a friendlier environment for, uh, you know, to, to help them survive. Yeah. Yeah, completely. And you you watch the weather really closely during the cool ship season, and if it's going to be extra cold, you'll brew a little, or you know, dilute a little more, or brew extra. Or if it's not quite as cold, or it's really humid, you'll brew a little bit less. Like you're adjusting those dials even on the day. Absolutely, and being able to adjust then you know total uh, you know total grist and everything else accordingly, saying all right tonight's going to be we need to keep this as a you know fif- ten degrees. Yeah, like, it's cold. <laughs> it's cold. Yeah. We can have that one up at thirty volumetric barrels as opposed to like all right we're getting into the the end member uh, you know spring. Ca- in the spring where it's like all right it's doing the the classic Belgian you know mid fifties in the daytime uh, you know low forties at nighttime it still technically works but we're going to have to keep that volume um, considerably. Lower to still, um, you know, fall somewhere between that twelve to eighteen hour cooling rate, and we're looking to cool down to uh, the mid to high sixties. That that for us has been a nice sweet spot. Uh, again, when we talk about selective pressures, I, I I think a huge component of 
of what makes uh, spontaneous beer successful, at least in our space, as well as maybe why there's some folklore against spring and summer brewing in Belgium really has to do with the onset of uh, initial fermentation temperature. If you take an IPA with a single strain of, you know, USO1 and start fermenting it at 80 degrees versus 65 degrees, you have a prolifically different fermentation. And that's without the compounding effect of, you know, mixed culture, microbial activity and all of that. So um, we also know that breweries like Girardin have a cool ship that they keep in their cellar and they, they do brew in the summer and they make lovely, lovely Lambic at that, at that point. So, um, you know, our, our goal certainly isn't to break down uh, folklore uh, for the name of science, but it is interesting to be able to brew according to folklore and and with this uh, very qualitative mindset in, in respect of the tradition, but then use a little bit of scientific understanding to validate or refute some of the you know uh, commonly spread gospels of Lambic mm-hmm. in that way. Mm-hmm. I love this scientific approach to the world's most romantically produced <laughs> beer. <laughs> and the irony, of course, for me is this is an artistic project, not a scientific project. <laughs> you can't take the scientist out of the... Yeah, yeah. Bring all the tools to it that you have. Yeah, exactly. Like that's uh, no, that's that's the approach that uh, we'd expect from somebody making, you know, from folks making great beer. Um, Let's talk. Let's talk a little bit about that that kind of fermentation. Now you have one, two, three, four year aged beer. You've got a whole bunch of uh, of barrels behind us. They're a little bit uh, larger. Uh, You talk to me about barrel choice and building that kind of environment for for fermentation. Uh, the main stack of our barrels are 500 liter puncheons. Um, they're ex Barolo barrels, which came to us neutral, um, but we still get a bunch of oak character, which is really beautiful. Um, they're really thick staves, just by being puncheons, they're not extra thick. Um, and we talked to a bunch of producers in Belgium, and they they basically said, you know, you can do it in any size barrel, but the bigger the better. So it's better surface area to volume ratio of touching the wood. It's better porosity. Um, through those thicker staves and we've had better results you know the larger barrels we use we have a couple fooders but mostly it's these 500 liter punches we've done a few batches in smaller barrels but sometimes it's hit or miss sometimes they go real weird real fast Mm. Um, but it's nice we like to finish beers in spirit barrels with or without fruit Um, so it's sort of everything spends at least two one to two seasons in these barrels if not longer the bigger ones and then we'll do like a spirit barrel or a, you know, something to finish it. Just to make it sexy and fun yeah, for, for yeah. customers. Gin <laughs> barrels, whiskey barrels, port bourbon barrels, you know, there's all sorts of fun stuff. Absolutely. And I will say barrel size and barrel selection is a large component of making this style of beer work in that, in this highly evaporative, uh, you know, uh, dry, high, uh, arid desert. So, yeah, Lisa mentioned it perfectly with that surface area to volume ratio and that and that tasteful kind of seasonal, um, you know, uh, breathing of the barrel, shall we say. But a big part of it is also the fact that with that evaporation, you've got now this extra headspace. So in a smaller barrel that has all of a sudden that headspace, there is more of that beer exposed and potentially degrading with time as a function of oxidation than in a larger barrel that develops that headspace. 
um, you might have that opportunity to leave that beer in there longer um, before you start to have the deleterious effects of that oxidation. That's also one of the reasons why if you look in lambic brewing tradition, your uh, barrels and your fooders are horizontal as opposed to in Flanders style sour production and some other Belgian uh, sour production, you see upright fooders. Or if you go to like New Belgium's Fooder Forest, you've got the uprights. And the whole idea there is all of a sudden with a little bit of evaporation, you've got the in- entirety, the uh, you know the surface area of that uh, circle, the circle of the fooder, yeah. Yeah, of the barrel is all of a sudden exposed to oxygen immediately. And that allows for hopefully tasteful uh, development of acetic acid and some more of that acidification as a component of that beer. So we, but if they're if they're horizontal, like the and if they, again yeah. famously visual medium these podcasts, <laughs> you have more of like a small oval. You can see I can see yeah. how that is yes. a narrower chunk that gets vertical. exposed. And yeah. then even as that continues, it's you know, it's yeah. not the entire Yes. With yeah. yeah, exactly right. <laughs> so you know, for us, larger barrels, and I think this is also true. You know, if you talk to Belgian lambic uh, blenders and and brewers out there, the same thing is is true. But it might be even more critical for us in this environment to use larger format barrels, yeah. um, especially for that primary fermentation and for that maturation phase. Like Lisa said, especially uh, you know later down the line and in the game, uh, use of uh, of spirit barrels uh, can can work. Which are typically smaller yeah yeah and another there's a balance here too because you know and there are american spontaneous beer producers who you know swear by fooders there are some who have were using fooders like degard and have moved away from that um you know there's a it's a balance between efficiency and also creating enough different varied stock to build a blend from you know uh, you know, the smaller barrel you use, the more processing you're doing, the more yeah. in and out, the more potential, you know, for oxygen there is, uh, just in the transferring and, and whatnot. Um, you know, but there, there has to be some sort of happy balance between those kinds of things. We also, you know, uh, anyone out there who wants to give us some fooders, we are ready to accept them. That's <laughs> that's one of the limiting factors of why we are, yeah, why we only have three fooders as opposed to that. It's not not necessarily a selection of like punchins are perfect size, no no larger, please. Uh, we will, we definitely would love to have some larger fooders for. Um, I would say. In in our perfect vision, we have um, some larger volumes of stock that age really super gracefully, are super rounded, or, uh, and just um, we'll say almost more neutral spontaneous stock. And then being able to use the punch-ins to salt and pepper that blend to add a little bit, uh, some more of the elements that we want to come to the forefront. Those punch-ins are going to have more decisive flavors and are going to stand out a little bit more on their own. So being able to, like you said, work between those two formats and beers that evolve differently for a number of reasons, but in this case, uh, uh, you know, at least partially a function of those uh, maturation environments, that that for us is is fun and something that we're looking forward to in the future. Talk to me about what it looks like then when you decide to start blending. You know, when you you know because that's the fun part, yeah. right? Because now there's you you've you've aged this beer, you've got it sitting here, and you start thinking about what beers are we going to make from this stock in any given year, knowing what we have. What, talk to me about that process. Yeah, it's uh, that that really is the fun part. You've put in all the work and you've been so patient and you finally get to blend. Um, we taste through lots of barrels of varying ages. Um, we pick out anything that we think is complete standout on its own, doesn't need to be blended, maybe doesn't, you know, 
it just is beautiful on its own. And then from there we go, okay, this beer, you know, this, this barrel is a little more bitter or a little sweeter perceiving or more funky or, you know, more sour, whatever. And then kind of look into like, well, what do we have fruit wise? What's available? Do we have any botanicals we want to use? Are there spirit barrels that we're really excited about? Does anyone want to collaborate? You know, these sort of things. And then take from each of those barrels and blend or, you know, spirit barrel age or whatever, depending on sort of what they're presenting. Um, But it's really fun to find that one barrel that's good on its own, doesn't need anything that feels really special. How does that look? I mean, you don't have, you know, we're not talking about hundreds or, hundreds no. or thousands of barrels. No. It's, like, it's a, you know, it's a somewhat more modest, yes. you know, kind of approach. Do you think about like, what are the beer, what are the beers that we're going to make for the season? Or do you think, oh, wait, now we've got some fruit yeah. coming and what are we going to make a beer with? It's a combination of both. So sometimes we get a deal on fruit and we're like, this is Colorado grown. This tastes incredible. Maybe we wouldn't have picked it up on our own, you know, out of a catalog, but it's been presented as, hey, this is, you know, ripe. And, and if you don't process it in a week and a half, it'll it turn. It needs a home. Yeah. And so we're happy to do that. Reduce food waste, taste great, support farmers again. Um, or we get a you know an email about new barrels that are in, in town and we're like oh this you know port bourbon barrel is amazing like let's make some let's pick out a blend that will go in that and then see how that you know ages we make a lot barrel. of impulse buys very for, for impor, or impulse shoppers <laughs> for, yeah, for, uh, for a patient spontaneous program yeah, we've also got impulsivity is, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's really just like what options do we have? What are the the most recent thing that You're was running a marathon with yeah. a sprint finish? <laughs> right at right. the end, so we that's sprint. A nice way of yeah, putting it. yeah, yeah. Someone gives us a, the goo pack, and you're like, yes, okay. Um, but we recently, I really wanted a spruce tip beer, and so that was more of a I want this, let's make it. And so Brandon sourced some Colorado spruce tips from Spruce on Tap. Is yep. that right? Shout and out to Spruce on Tap out there for all of your spruce needs. Yeah, that's it's a just Colorado a business. Company. That's a yeah. business. <laughs> yeah. And then we used of course it, it is. Gin yeah, it has to be gin barrel and it turned out wonderfully so i was really that was one that was like i specifically want this let's make this but typically it's a little more loose i think yeah (laughs) and and to the yeah to that question a lot of times the gamblers in us are tasting beers and saying do we think this beer has more potential for evolution is taking the beer out of this barrel right now potentially cutting short the life or the evolution of something that can be truly special if given more time. And you never know the answer to that. And a number of different parameters that are unpredictable to us can very much shape that barrel. But having used some of these barrels multiple times now, you can start to get an idea of, okay, we've had beers that have gotten to the three-year mark in this barrel. Let's take the risk. Let's put it, you know, let's put it all on it versus, you know, that barrel. Um, it, and it sometimes it's just a visible, a physical function of that barrel. It's like, I think the one to two-year mark is perfect on this. Let's not push it anymore. I think it's it's primed right now. So when we taste, there is definitely a function of, you know, making sure it, it, making sure that we have full use of the best beer that we can for this season without taking away the best beer that there could be for next season, which is an That's impossible game to play, but certainly you know, presents uh, it's fun. <laughs> it's okay to be wrong too. The two of you work together when blending. Yeah, absolutely. Um, building, you know, across any kind of team and it's different because you're a married couple and you spend a lot of time together. <laughs> and, do spend yeah. a lot of time um, together. <laughs> but in any kind of team, you know, a common language so that, you know, is important so that you are understanding and communicating what you are perceiving. Um, you know, even though you all 
potentially taste things in slightly different ways. All human beings do, um, being able to describe what those things and what they mean so that you understand each other is important. You know, talk to me about some of that language Mm -hmm. and that means of articulating things that you've developed. Is there any shorthand, you know, that you all use to describe things? Yeah. Well, we definitely talk about like, how does this perceive and how does it feel? I mean, when you're drinking it and then, and then we sort of take time and say, you know, specifically flavors, like what do you get? What do you get? And there's a lot of, a lot of, some of the flavors come up over and over like honey and like burnt honey. We get a lot of pineapple and over fermented pineapple, those kinds of flavors we always talk about. And then we try and say, okay, does this remind you of anything? And then I don't know. What do you think? I, I think yeah. I think you're right on. I uh, what I will say has been helpful with our commonality of languages. You are sensory trained. Mm-hmm. I am sensory trained yeah. from uh, from other brewery environments and actually being able to not only identify well, quote unquote all flavors, but actually drill down and say this flavor. What is this? Right. Rather than just being like I like something about this, you have to be able to specifically yeah. having having some of those defined uh, sensory descriptors. Even if there's a lot more allowable and a lot of fun, more interesting, funky, param- like funky descriptors that we can use for this, we are able to start working from the a very common descriptive language, which helps. And also through, uh, you know, classic sensory, knowing where my blind spots are mm-hmm. and knowing where your blind spots yes. are or what we are both respectively more sen- uh, like sensitive to. I am super sensitive to ethyl acetate, which for better or worse is yeah. a common flavor that can develop in, in these beers. quantities, I'm like, oh, this is so fruity. I love it. And, and I'm already like, picking oh. up Sharpie and, and uh, yeah, uh, So we, we <laughs> watch that on each other. And then, yeah, maybe like acetic acid, we're pretty careful because yeah. I feel like we're both pretty sensitive to that. Yeah. Oh, to- yep. And. And you're more sensitive probably or or have a slightly uh, lower threshold for enjoyment of uh, phenols and some yeah. of the you know some of those characteristics where you can throw a bunch of phenols at me and I'm like that's pretty fun <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, there is a fun uh, being able to communicate and trust each other in that way of saying I don't taste what you're tasting but I know that you do and if we can between the two of us come up with what we think is a great blend, bring a couple other friends and a couple other people that we you know, believe uh, also have good sensory and robust um, uh, sensitivities to things that we can't pick up as easily. That's our best bet of putting out something that is most enjoyable, hopefully, uh, to people out there. I don't think our intention has ever been to put out the most uh, intense uh, in any one direction no. beer of any in fact, sort. We're trying not to, right? Uh, <laughs> even at our highest fruiting rates, that you know, when fruit is prominent, we don't want it to be the most intensely fruity thing that you've ever tasted. Um, certainly not the most intensely hoppy, as we discussed, or um, or acidic, or any of those things. Balance is something that we strive for, only because that's what we are selfish and <laughs> enjoy ourselves. <laughs> and taking some cues from. Other um, low intervention or minimalist or natty, whatever you want to call it, uh, other fermentation styles outside of lambic goose or or sour beer brewing. I mean, being able to taste different ciders and wines and other fermentations that were like, oh, that's so good. Like, yeah. how do we? What about it is so good. right. What do we like yeah. about this? What is working? And how can elements of this beverage inspire blends of of you know spontaneous beer? Even if it is in the tradition of lambic, it doesn't mean that we're aiming to clone lambic or goose yeah. or you know. 
know, like we said in that perfect example before. Is so, there a specific example of that? You know, where you tasted something or like, I bet we can, you know, find some way to, you know, express this type of character using in some ways. Basque style cider has been a fun mm. inspiration. Not go. I mean, and that bringing that up, that's a rather intense fermentation. A lot of times, whether it goes more acidic or goes more, but, the, um, but there's other phenolic. layers in there yeah. that are really enviable. Yeah. The that's a nice way of putting yeah. that. So we've definitely tasted some Basque style ciders that we've said, all right, um, you know, with maybe some, uh, I think Basque style cider has inspired some of our sweet cherry refermentations. We did one on Rainier cherries that to us, all of a sudden, you know, the way that a golden sweet cherry compared to a red sour cherry referments is like night and day. You get so many different compounds output by, uh, by those golden cherries that are almost more like vegetal and, uh, overturned forest floor, which are not, you know, better or worse than other characteristics, but being able to taste those and say like, okay, maybe we want to push us in a direction that reminds us of Basque style cider, uh, in some ways, not again, trying to clone that beverage. And, uh, I think that, that has helped, um, yeah, and ciders. We've definitely done a lot of other bes- besides uh, Basque style ciders. Oh, I was gonna say natural white wines too. Yeah, there's a lot of really cool similarities, yeah. flavor wise. But I'm like Grunewald Liner and uh, some yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, even even non right. Though. Yeah, we've like done some. We've got a desire to play around with riddling and degorging at some point, and we with took our beers. I'm really excited. Yeah, uh, <laughs> It'll be fun. It'll be a lot of work. <laughs> Ode, Ode Beer still makes this incredible beer, Bizarre, sure. which is taking their lambic but uh, champanizing it, shall we say? Right, right. And it every time we have a bottle of that, it just blows my mind. Both the the creek, which is going for more like a rosé, versus just their Melissima, uh, you know, lambic that is hidden those champagne vibes and that that use of uh, you know both the champagne inspiration and some of the flavors you can get out of that as well as there are some you know natural processed champagnes that sure. uh, are oak fermented and don't go you know have some degree of funk to them I, I think that's there's a lot of intersectionality uh, for fermentations around that when it comes to to fruit do you uh, you know obviously you've got a constraint of using Colorado fruit um, is there and I you've got a number of fruit processing uh, equipment pieces mm-hmm. right behind us as, yeah. <laughs> as we're sitting right here so clearly you're taking whole fruit you're you know you're processing them yourselves and uh, you know and then adding that um, are there some specific fruits that you found you enjoy going to more than others and are there some methods for adding those that you found yourself leaning towards Absolutely. And we are, we, I will say we are continuously learning, uh, what, what those different fruits, especially year to year and being able to be able to taste a piece of fresh fruit and have some assessment of what that looks like, uh, or what that might look like from a fermentative standpoint. Cherries, especially Montmorency and Balaton cherries are, uh, for us, it kind of always, uh, I would say, always towards a success. I think by virtue of cherries being super antioxidative, they are easy to work with. We can take some beer and know that they'll referment on those cherries and not, um, and and have the potential to then age gracefully uh, afterwards. Uh, I was gonna say we we've done a lot of peach batches, but we like nectarines better. They sometimes, well, sometimes it depends, but sometimes those maybe because they don't have the fuzz. Uh, there seems to be like a cleaner, more candy fruit forward profile, which if you're, if you want the funk, that's also great. But sometimes you just want like a candy sweet fruit beer and and those are really fun. And then apricot in that same family, we've been 
failing a lot. Yeah, we've been really struggling with because they're so they get so malic and therefore so acidic with development. And, and so you have to pick such a plain, mild base beer if possible, and then even then, sometimes you overshoot it. So. I, yeah, we've had two batches of apricot beers that I would say were failures that will never see the light of day. Which is so hard to do. It's so sad. Uh, it takes so much time. Oh, yeah. But it's just leading into it's our craft vinegar project that we'll release someday. Oh, yeah. and, <laughs> and if anything, much like those homebrewer days of understanding, okay, you know, it doesn't mean that it were, they were bad apricots and it doesn't mean that no. our beer is bad. It just means there's a, a process that needs to be tweaked or something that needs to be understood. And after having some fun conversations with, let's give a, a shout out to Eric Schmidt and uh, Amalgam Brewing. And uh, you know some of their turbulence with apricot in the in the past, and and some other sour brewers. This this season, we've had a what I'm considering a phenomenal apricot refermentation that is now in bottles. And as long as things uh, continue favorably on that trajectory, uh, I'm excited to release our first apricot beer. And a big part of that was really a function of fruiting rate and contact time for those for a lot of those stone fruits, apricots, peaches, and uh, even nectarines to some degree. Initially, we were doing way too long. huge fruit loads and way too long. And then we were doing lesser fruit loads for way too long. <laughs> now, so basically just being able to have a tank ready, put the beer on, and then take it off when it's tasting good. Weeks, like weeks yeah. in. Whereas yeah. – Rather than months. Yeah. Other fruits like cherries, you can have an enormous fruit load and leave them on, quote, unquote, way too long, and it's perfect. Yeah. Um, you get – you know, with those cherries, and I think a big part of it is, again, that antioxidative uh, quality of that fruit – you know, the longer you leave it on, you have because we're leaving the pits and all of that. You are now starting to extract the the fun pit flavors, whether it's noyo or something similar. More complexity from the skins of the cherries, and uh, you know, maybe a bit more color from the flesh and all of that too. So, we we've definitely adapted our fruiting rates, our time uh, that the beer spends on the fruit. In general, the beers that we're putting on fruits tend to be lower acidity, more neutral base because we know. Uh, nearly every fruit is going to add the at least perception of greater acidity, whether it's a function of that refermentation, uh, nudging up the lactic acidity, the actual organic acids that are in the fruits, et cetera. Um, so knowing that even going into the bottle, we want everything to be less acidic than we want when it's finally all uh, you know package conditioned, uh, because then that last uh, overlaying uh, feature is going to be carbonic acid and the perception of uh, carbonation and uplifting of other volatiles. And you know, I think it again along those qualitative lines, it matters more how the balance feels necessarily than how the acidity measures. Sure. And all of that fruiting happens in stainless steel tanks? Not all of it. Not all of it? <laughs> Some of it's in barrels. The, the stainless steel refermentation is really only for our largest and what we would consider kind of like uh, the fruit refermentations that we are willing to put a lot of beer into and yeah. know that like, all right, we've done cherries now, you know, five seasons in a row. We can, we can get, you know, 3000 pounds of cherries and, and put four punchins on them. And, you know, this is, let's, let's go for it. And As then a, second use. And, and yeah, exactly. Yeah. Be able to use them a, a second time, mostly then for some of our cask beers and the, and the younger still stuff. But we for other projects, it was like I have never used that fruit, or you know, we've messed up apricots mm. uh, two times already. <laughs> like, are we willing to go, we go that deep lighter. into it? Uh, in those cases, we'll go. We'll generally referment um, in either two or four two hundred twenty-five liter 
um, or 200 liter barrels, depending on whether we're going with a, you know, American oak versus like French or Hungarian oak. So we certainly do some uh, barrel refermentations as well. You just have more logistical, uh, more logistical from a cleanup as well as debarreling uh, issues to worry about going from a barrel refermentation uh, as opposed to our stainless refermenters or, or those Hoover tanks that we have uh, yeah. manways right on the front. We can put sieve gaskets, you know, everywhere. We're not doing any filtration or, or fining or anything like that, but using a series of, um, you know, fining sieve gaskets, we can remove a lot of that fruit material and, uh, and pulp out of the, uh, out of the equation. Plus then once beer is moved off the fruit, we are often giving it a, another about a month in like a cylindroconical blending tank to really allow anything else that was in suspension to settle out uh, for that beer to become a little bit rounder. And also just to make sure that, you know, we have a, a good understanding of what that terminal gravity is at this point so that when we go for bottle blending, we're not creating something in the end that has a lack or an abundance of, of carbonation there too. So from a geologic standpoint, cylinder conicals mm. allow for uh, really good fine. I mean, that's the purpose of them from sure, a yeast standpoint, sure. but allows for really great fruit finding in that way too. From and a geologic standpoint? Yeah, you know, we, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for, strata, right? Well, strata yeah. and, and, and sediment traps. And we used to deploy those Got to the bottom of lakes. It. They were in conical formation I as well. You. So, you know, I just a little call back to geology. <laughs> call back. Yeah. I see it. I see it. Um, and then for, <laughs> for that refermentation in the bottles, you know, obviously your bottle conditioning, um, you know, what does that process look like for you? Uh, we either use local honey uh, or uh, young spontaneous beer as a primary sugar. Mm -hmm. um, we bottle, we do cork and crown um, just to sort of do homage to various sure. breweries that we really respect, uh, plus better oxygen scrubbing um and then we age them on their sides in cages mm -hmm. uh, about 72 to 75 degrees for at least three months sometimes six to eight months depending if they're a little slower or 12 so, if it, yeah, yeah 12 if it's uh, an unfruited beer that hasn't had a you know that is at three years of age and hasn't seen sugar in too many moons and it, it takes yeah. some time for those not necessarily for the carbonation uh we I would say we typically find our beers to be nearly fully, fully carbonated um, two to three months in, but it's really any additional time is, is all about cohesion and making sure that all of the intermediate, like THP is uh, removed from the equation that even, even if there are no red flags from a sensory standpoint of like, I don't get diacetyl, I don't get acetyl, I don't get any of these things, like, does it? taste exactly how you want it to does it you know is this is this where it should be yet and uh, you know a lot of times that's the we're still waiting on one yeah we're just like <laughs> no not yet but it's you know been a while yeah and that can that can happen and sometimes uh, some of our favorite beers have gone through those the the most tumultuous of roller coasters we're like i don't know if it's ever coming out of this and then when it, if and when it finally does you're like oh yeah this mm, is worth the wait <laughs> yeah this is worth the wait so it's no, it, it, the bottle conditioning is that whole, whole next step of, of that process. It's been fun to release beers still, and we will always continue to have our equivalent to young Lambic or even Oda Lambic in that way of, of no carbonation just being sent through the beer engines and the sparkler. And that was really early on in the business. We had the decision, all right, do we want to make other mixed culture fermentations or Cezanne or even, you know, pale ale and, you know, and be doing that to keep paying the bills and eventually release our spontaneous beer. And eventually we decided pretty quickly that, no, that's, 
that's not the route we want to take because it might become too easy to be successful at making other styles of beer <laughs> and, and making money and realizing like, you know, how can we justify only making, um, you know, method traditional spontaneous beer? So we went the other route, which was... So you weren't kidding about the socialist thing. Yeah, right? no, 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 exactly. Heaven forbid we should be successful. I, yeah, yeah. yeah. We've been known to make other styles of beer at other breweries. I mean, I, I've put an IPA or two together previously, mm, sure. but like, no, we knew that we wanted to go all in on this and really just use this as an opportunity for developing expertise, which sure. should you know take the rest of our lives to get anywhere near there. Uh, but in that way, um, you know, having two to three years of understanding our beer, the evolution and how it drinks, even just evolving in cask. And then, you know, I think that led to a lot of early success with bottle conditioning because we understood our beer. Um, and at we, our, yeah, I was going to say at our grand opening, we had old beer. We had like nine month to a year old beer. But I look back on like what that tasted like and it was so young, like it tasted so, so young. Um, but it's just what we had and we couldn't wait, you know, two, three years to open. We wanted to do it after one year. So, yeah. And, and we still like finding some of those young examples totally. and you're like, oh, yeah, let's put that in a cask because it, yeah. it's fruity and it's, you know, it's without having fruit. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But it was uh, it's a long time to get to know our beers, which was cool. Sure. Sure. Now that you all are taking this next step, you're, you know, COVID is starting to wind down a little bit. You know, thankfully, places are able to operate. You're getting back to reopening the tap room now, serving beer directly to customers in a way that hasn't happened for the last, you know, 18 plus months. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, as you start thinking about next steps for the brewery, what uh, what does success look like? What are the ultimate goals for Primitive? When will you know that you've achieved what you set out to do? Or do those goalposts move for you over they time? Do, yeah. These are conversations that we are having Daily. a lot of right now. So that that, that hits home <laughs> uh, Yeah, in a, in a lot of ways. Well, right now we're open four days a week, uh, just a, you know, four to six hours in the afternoons, evenings. Um, and we've been, and you all are tending bar too. It's really just Brandon. Just Brandon. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. If you, if you, <laughs> I am trapped here. So if you are, if you're looking for where I'm hanging out any, you know, between, uh, Friday and Monday, I will be here. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's that, and we've added a, a guest list and a seller list. So we've kind of expanded that program, which is really cool. You get to drink Lambic and goose alongside our method traditional. Um, as far as further in the future, we're still figuring it out. Uh, I think we want to keep our operation fairly small, probably this size or a tiny bit bigger, but not really looking to get crazy. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, previously we've been just uh, back of envelope. We've probably been filling about 200 to 250 volumetric barrels of spontaneous beer a year, but we've only been releasing, I think the first year was 20 volumetric mm-hmm. barrels and, uh, <laughs> year, and that massive increase to year two, which was 40 volumetric barrels. And I think uh, maybe, maybe this year will be like 60 volumetric barrels, something like that. So there's like, you know, we've been putting a lot of stock into aging development, turning barrels through that just, you know, haven't uh, evolved in ways that, uh, that we see fit. Uh, so that at this point that we have a lot of beer that we're excited for that we can now, turn into fun projects and be able to, uh, you know, put more into package. So, you know, that doesn't require us increasing our scale. It really just uh, requires us to, you know, package a bit more. And the goal will never be to be the, uh, you know, Browery bone of uh, American spontaneous beer. We're never going to have the largest style. I think Crooked Stave is already beating us considerably and they're making incredible spontaneous beer. Sure, so, sure. Like, you know, the, the, our, our goal will never be like the most 
or the most intense in that way, but is, you know, making the, the beers that we at least have our imprint on them or at least have our, uh, yeah, that, Maybe that a goal is to not let any barrels, uh, you know, turn that, that were too old. Like if, if something is three or four years, make sure it gets packaged and used in a blend rather than letting it go too far. Dedicating, dedicating yeah. our time as a resource yeah, so that the time we put in, in doesn't, it, right. Exactly. Doesn't, that doesn't spoil, uh, spoil that beer or that batch. That's certainly a goal, but I would say another goal that we're working towards is, you know, with outside of the realm of spontaneous beer is also spontaneous fermentation of other sugar substrates. So in that way, working on uh, minimalist or low intervention wines and ciders as well, that almost becomes something with a little more breadth because there are so many different techniques we can apply to that. We won't necessarily hold ourselves to one sort of spontaneous uh, re-fermentation tradition in that, even if for beer, we're just, you know, we're sticking to, uh, you know, lambic and method traditional. I would say that, you know, if I'm thinking 10, 20 years in advance and because I do, I want to do this the rest of my life. That's what we're trying to set up for now is, is sustainability from a career standpoint and from a climate and everything else standpoint is what does primitive beer look like when Pearl starts growing up? And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, is there a business that we can one day hand over, uh, you know, uh, within the family and should she want should to? she want to exactly she mm-hmm. she can either be a geologist or a brewer she's got two choices yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or a geologist who brews for, you know on the side um, yeah brewer who does geology I know right all of these possibilities amateur geology but it would be amazing to someday have a, a parcel of land uh, our own kind of area that uh, you know we can always be fermenting things and whether that, you know, has a separate space for uh, Lambic inspired beers and for natural process wines and ciders. And, and I, you know, I wasn't really joking about the vinegar either. I think, uh, artisanal, uh, no, spontaneous vinegar. We've had some craft vinegars from uh, other spontaneous oh, beer producers natives, that have been, was it native species? No, native species. Native root. Native. Oh man. Anyway. Uh, a, oh, it was just called native, native vinegar. Yeah. Uh, from strange roots in Pennsylvania is the best vinegar. It's incredible. Mm, yeah. Barrel aged spontaneous vinegar. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah, we it, use it in everything. Yeah. You, don't, you don't, yeah, it's not, it's not <laughs> drinking vinegar, <No>. <laughs> sure, sure, <laughs> but you sure. know, used in a meal and cooking and that kind of thing. Um, so, you know, someday have it, I don't know what that looks like, right. whether that's right. in Belgium and we're actually making Lambic or if that's in Colorado still, or the Hudson Valley of New York from kind of where I'm from. I'm not, uh, you know, I think that's, that's still really nebulous and we're going to keep riding that wave. But in the near term, I think being able to take our beers and approach more restaurants and approach more um, more kind of bars and eateries that are focused on those other natural fermentations that don't really look at beer and trying to show that there might be more uh, continuity or more similarity in flavor pro- uh, in, in, in flavor profile as well as process between the beers that we make and other styles of fermentation rather than uh, you know maybe other three week turnaround beers. So I think that's going to be as we as socialists I uh, now taking uh, eventually taking money from this project we will have to find a way to make that money so that I think means <laughs> from my limited understanding means selling more beer and that's like all right what it's is one option yeah what does that, that look like yeah we don't know <laughs> yeah I always 
look at it not as selling more, but as making more people happy. Aww. That, um, <laughs> All right, I'm in. Let's go. We just sold Brandon on the idea of selling more beer. When, yeah. we, when we sell more magazines, we are making more people happy or we're fulfilling some need that, that they have. And we do better because we're delivering you know, more and more, more what people smiles. want. I like that. That's and so, a, yeah. hey, I just I hope you all continue to make people happy. I appreciate Thank that. You. I'm glad that we're making anyone happy. We're certainly making ourselves happy, which, yeah. uh, which you know, was was uh, step one. And sure. if step two can be make other people happy, then you know we're going to have to figure out what a step three looks like. <laughs> that's yeah, the future. We'll leave that one to Pearl. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Well, thank you for joining me for this episode of the podcast. G&D's micro-channel condensers use a fraction of the refrigerant over traditional chillers. T45 lupulin-enriched hop pellets contain a higher concentration of aromatic oils and bittering resins with a reduced level of polyphenols and plant material. Old Orchard prides themselves on consistent product and reliable supply. Pro Brew has the equipment, systems, and technology to take your brewery production to the next level. Fermentus offers dry ale and lager yeasts and flexible 100-gram packaging and make your system 100% food safe with Clarion lubricants. If you would like to support this podcast, go to beerandbring.com. Click on the subscribe button. Do it right now because next Thursday, the annual Best in Beer issue comes out. And if you want to see it first, you have to be a subscriber to the magazine. You will get it on your email the moment it gets released. So go subscribe now at beerandbring.com. You know, we also have all access subscriptions that bundle the magazines with exclusive digital and video uh, content. And we've got some great class. We have great class out right now with uh, Vinny Chalurzo and Taylor Lane from Russian River Brewing on oxygen in the brewing process. And if you've ever wanted to watch Vinny hand bottle, (laughs) hand bottle and uh, using a variety of different hand bottling methods, purging, not purging, length of purge, et cetera, uh, swirl capping on foam and then throwing him into an Anton Parr TPC 5000 to see what the results of those methods are. This is the class for you. I love that. It's pretty awesome. Um, And you can find that all on beerandbrewing.com. Lisa and Brandon, if people want to learn more about primitive beer, where do they find you? We have a website, primitive.beer. We have an Instagram, primitive beer. um, And that's the main things. Yeah, it's it's mostly through the social medias and... um, Yeah, you can reach out with questions. Totally. We'd love to interact with people. Yeah, anyone who has uh, geeky or not-so-geeky questions on any of this, uh, we're down to to chat all the time. So this is the kind of of stuff that, in a positive way, keeps us up at night. (laughs) In a good way. Yeah. Sure. And if you happen to be in Colorado, you are just a little bit north of Denver here in Longmont. Yes, please visit us. Yeah, I'll I'll be here. So <laughs> love to love to meet you all and uh, yeah, put some names to faces. But yeah, at, at this point and going forward for the foreseeable future, Fridays are four to eight, Saturdays and Sundays are two to eight, and Mondays are four to eight. So yeah, right up here in uh, just south of downtown Longmont. Yeah. Well, again, thanks for joining for the podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Cheers. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.